Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor in London. It's Wednesday, the 14th of December. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every week, we interview a guest for their unique perspectives and expertise. Today, our guest is David Middleband, President of the International Rescue Committee, and the former UK Foreign Secretary. He joins me from New York to discuss the IRC's new report on the countries most at risk of humanitarian crises in 2023, what the crisis in Ukraine has taught the world, and what UK should prioritise with its foreign policy. David Miliband, thank you for joining me. So the IRC has released this new report highlighting the countries that are most at risk of suffering a new or worsening humanitarian crisis next year. What goes into highlighting or spotting the next crisis? We try to take a data-driven approach to all of our work, but also add qualitative insight as well as quantitative data crunching. So for the annual emergency watch list, which was originally an internal management tool for pre-positioning people and cash and medicines, and has now become a much wider call to action for the international system. There are really two main sources. One is 67 different data sets that we use to calculate different aspects of humanitarian need, obviously focused on the 2022 results, but also trying to look forward to trends. And then the second thing is we have 220 field sites in about 40 countries around the world, and we get local insight that gives some color to the data. It is incredible if you think about it. The UN said last week that 340 million people are in humanitarian need. That means they need international aid to stay alive. These 20 countries that we put onto our watch list, they account for 91% of total humanitarian needs. So more than 300 million people count for more than 80% of the world's forcibly displaced, so refugees and asylum seekers and internally displaced. And they represent more than 80% of the world's hungry and more than 100% of those in famine. So we're hitting the target's pretty well, but full confession, we missed Ukraine last year, so we don't always get it right. Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to ask about. Obviously, one of the like huge stories of this year of a country in crisis is Ukraine. And so Ukraine now features on your watch list for 2023. What risks are you watching for when it comes to Ukraine for next year? U- Ukraine's at 10. And the only upside of the Ukraine war is that the humanitarian response, both inside Ukraine and outside, has been good. It's been well-funded, very well-funded. And in Europe, c- 
countries have really stepped up. Three years residency in the European Union, three years social service access, three years education for kids. So that's been very strong. What we're looking for uh, is really to understand the dynamics when the military strategy of Russia becomes essentially all about pummeling civilian infrastructure. There isn't a military-to-military -military game plan that the Russians seem to have at the moment. What they're trying to do is destroy the ability of the state to function mm -hmm. and the society to function. And so obviously we are concerned about, it was minus five degrees yesterday in Ukraine when I spoke to the team there. We're concerned about people being able to heat and support themselves. And if they can't, then deciding to move. And so we're trying to plan for that. But we're also trying to make the point the longer the Ukraine war goes on, the bigger the impact globally. The, there's one of the interesting micro statistics in the report is that the inflation, the food price inflation in the 20 watch list countries is about 40%, which is more than double the, if you like, the Western average. And so people who are quote unquote food insecure, the Ukraine war has been a terrible turn of the screw, really because it's compounded the consequences of conflict and the climate crisis. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Obviously, the crisis in Ukraine is not just contained within the country. There's ripple effects and direct effects, I think, on some of the other countries that are on the list. Yeah, I'll come to that. But let me just, let me make two points. One is, a very, I think, a very new statesman point in a way, which is that in Europe, and especially in the UK, you hear people in government saying, because of Ukraine, we can't do anything anywhere else where all of our resources are going to Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. It's really striking for me as a Brit living in America, the American government is saying the exact opposite. That yeah. They're saying it's precisely because of Ukraine's impact on global on the global situation that we're stepping up. Just yesterday, we're speaking on Tuesday, no, Wednesday, Samantha Power, the US Agency for International Development, they announced another $400 million for Somalia, just for Somalia. That means the U.S. has given, I'm going to try and get the statistics right for you, 1.3 billion has been given for the U.N. appeal. The U.S. accounts for about 80% of total support for Somalia. So basically, everyone else is using the excuse of Ukraine not to help globally. The U.S. is saying precisely because of Ukraine's effects on global extreme poverty, we're going to step up further. And there's even congressional support for it. So it's pretty amazing. So in terms of the actual impact, but one of the things about the watch list, 15 of the 20 countries have been there for at least five years. So protracted crisis gives lie to the idea that emergency is some kind of short-term palliative. It's a long-term palliative. And what we found this year, which is different from previous year, in previous years, we said, look, there's conflict, there's climate, there's COVID. This year, we're saying the real kicker has been the economic shockwaves of both COVID and the Ukraine war. Mm -hmm. And that's what's driven this extraordinary increase in the number of people right on the precipice. Really on the precipice, the people of famine, 700,000 people in Somalia in famine conditions today, even though famine mm -hmm. hasn't declared. 35 million people or 40 million people across East Africa who are uh, at the international phase classification of level three or above, which means they're hungry. Mm -hmm. And that's not all a Ukraine effect. But I was in Ethiopia, Eastern Ethiopia last month. There's no question. They, they know about the Ukraine war. <laughs> And they yeah. know because of the impact on food and energy prices, never mind, some people know that gl higher global interest rates are coming. That means higher debt interest payments, lots of fears about debt default in emerging economies, et cetera, et cetera. One thing that might be interesting for you, framing of this, I think, is that we've got, maybe I should try and write about this, we've got the globalization of risk 
but the nationalization of resilience. Not yeah. quite the right way of putting it. We've got risks going global, mm-hmm. but resilience retreating to the national level. And that creates a gap that is profound for the world, but it's mm-hmm. especially dangerous for people who are clients of ours. You mentioned that Somalia, it hadn't actually officially been declared a famine yet. So is the international community too slow to recognize these crises for what they are? Yes, the international community is murderously slow. In a, in a, mortally slow is a better way of putting it. Dan- very dangerously slow. But it's also got itself into a real pickle on this famine question. Because it's almost like people are waiting for famine to be declared before doing anything. Mm-hmm. Even though we know that in the 2011 famine, half the people died before the famine was declared in Somalia. 260,000 people died. Half of them died before famine was declared. So what we're saying is, look, don't wait for the famine declaration. That's too late for many people. There are people dying. This international phase classification has great strengths. It's really bringing, it was established after the 2011 famine to try to bring some order to to global prioritization. But it was not intended to be an on-off switch. It was meant to say, once you're at IPC level three, never mind four, which are below famine, which is five, you've got to get motoring. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, the US is trying, but EU, Gulf, Nowhere on the you UK. Mentioned- Don't even get me going. Yeah, we'll come to that one shortly. You mentioned a lot of these countries that are on the list have been on the list for five five plus years and they're protracted crises. Is there too much of a, I think, maybe a perception that some of these crises are intractable and just they can't be solved and that aid is just not being done right and not working. Aid can't resolve the upstream questions of conflict. There are 54 conflicts going on around the world, and that is mm-hmm. a crisis of diplomacy. There's state failure because there are states around the world that are oppressing their own citizens, including denying them aid. There's diplomatic failure, 54 civil wars going on around the world. There's legal failure because there's impunity against civilians. Those are meant not just to be safe in conflict, they're meant to be guaranteed access to aid. And there's obviously then the humanitarian sector, which if you define it just as survival, is too narrow. We at the International Rescue Committee, we say that our job is to help people whose lives are shattered by conflict and disaster, survive, recover, and gain control of their lives. In other words, survive, you can't just say, it might be a 20-year conflict, we're gonna keep, we'll, we'll keep you alive. We're saying that's mm-hmm. not a good enough model. So you've got to invest in education. You've got to invest in employment. And the humanitarian and development sectors are not working properly. Never mind not working properly with the climate mm-hmm. sector. One of the things I- that we say in the report is that the climate movement and the humanitarian movement is crazy to live in separate silos. There needs to be joint mapping of risks. There needs to be joint investment in climate resilient innovation. And there needs to be joint financing because it's the same people who are at the sharpest end. I was going to say, it was very striking looking at the report, the number of countries that are facing problems related to climate change, not just conflict. Do you foresee a time in the future where climate change-related crises eclipses political instability or conflict? Or do they feed off one another? Yes, I think that's much better. The way you phrased it originally was they're somehow competing crises, whereas I would see them as uh, cumulative or combined crises. Climate crisis, if you're a herder in eastern Ethiopia, where I was, you lose 40 of your livestock, that's a crisis. So it's a direct crisis, but there's also indirect crisis. Resource stress caused in part by the climate crisis is a fuel, a multiplier of conflicts, a multiplier of humanitarian need. Mm -hmm. So I think rather than seeing them as 
climate or humanitarian, we've changed our constitution at the International Rescue Committee to make it clear that the climate crisis is a big part of what we do. Now, some people then say, oh, so you're about climate refugees. And I say, hang on, there's less of that. Most of the people who move because of climate stay within their own country. Refugee is someone who crosses a border. But climate is, is a, and the climate crisis today, not tomorrow, because remember, average increases in global temperatures are associated with more extreme weather events. The climate crisis is today, and it's part of, it's a driver, an accelerator of humanitarian need. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Armando Yanucci. And I'm Anoush Shekelian. And we present Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast. Each episode, we'll be taking a look at how our politics has got so broken and whether there's anything we can do to fix it. We hear from people shaping our society, from the front line to the corridors of power, alongside campaigners, journalists and satirists, including John Stewart, Ian Hislop, Rosamond Adukissi Deborah, and Catherine Haddon. You can listen to all three series now. Just search the New Statesman podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to newstatesman.com forward slash Westminster Reimagined. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Is there a model or an example of a time that the West has not just addressed a crisis in action, but worked to stave off a crisis from happening that could be used as a of core? I don't know if this is quite what you're asking, but the UK did play an important role in 2016, 17 okay. in convening global action and funding global action to stave off the famine in Somalia. Mm. Now, you then get into bigger arguments. I suppose the next step, you look at a country like East Timor, it's had a big post-conflict reconstruction, Sierra Leone, Liberia, you might make similar arguments. You're then into much more controversial territory about Kosovo and et cetera, and you get caught up in the politics. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, I think it is right to say that the tools of diplomacy for relations between states have shown themselves to be very, very ill-suited for mm -hmm. helping to resolve conflicts within states. Mm -hmm. We've got a real mismatch there between civil mm -hmm. wars and interstate relations. It doesn't work. But that's not to say there are examples where there's been real progress. Now, you said, is it by the West? I think one's got to be slightly careful about that. Uh, there are examples where it's not right to say, look, we're all doomed, I guess is what mm -hmm. I'm saying. You mentioned the UK. Obviously, you have a lot of experience within government and now working internationally from abroad. What what would you say is wrong with the UK's foreign policy at the moment? The UK hasn't really had a foreign policy for the last decade. I think that's basically the problem. It's been really, it's really striking. And that's why people say, oh, Liz Truss made us a laughingstock. It's almost worse than that. I made a speech at Chatham House a couple of weeks ago saying that there's real sadness and pity because the world's worse when Britain's not playing its role. Now, that's not to be grandiloquent or grandiose about what our role is. We're 60 million people on the edge of Europe and the world is shifting to bigger countries in the East and the South. But we do have, for all the negatives, we have a big set of positive legacies of our history. Mm -hmm. And those are relationships and learnings and commitments and partnerships and reputation, never mind political power, cultural power, economic power, that can be used for good. And so I think there's been a void in UK foreign policy really for a decade. And that's really troubling. Now, at the moment, I think we're still trapped in this post, it's not post-Brexit, but post the withdrawal from the EU syndrome. Foreign policy is actually an obvious area for us to have close relations with Europe. And I can't for the life of me understand why it's not being done by the, well, I can understand they're scared of the politics. Actually, there is no, there's no downside as far as I'm concerned to closer political relations with the EU as an entity. The last government integrated defense review pretended the EU didn't exist as a foreign mm -hmm. security actor. That makes no sense at all. It mentioned the Arctic more than it mentioned Germany. And that doesn't make sense. Now on the particular point about that we're talking about in this watch list. Britain, I'll quote Andrew Mitchell, Britain was a development and aid superpower, and now it's not. And that's a conscious set of choices that the Tories have made. And I think it's very damaging globally, but it's also damaging for the reputation of Britain because we're just not able to punch anywhere near our way. And that is, that's really sad to me. We'll come back to the UK, but is there a country that is setting the bar for how aid should be handled? in 2023. I mean, there are different aspects of this. The aid system needs a lot of reform. Some good reforms, for example, around multi-year funding being led from the EU. Some, some interest in the US now in 
tightening the commitment to women and girls because two-thirds of our clients are women and girls, the massive gender inequalities. We've said that to be a successful humanitarian organization, we need to be a feminist organization that takes seriously structural inequalities of power that exist in the communities in which we work, never mind the sector that we work in. The Canadians have been very good on community engagement for refugee resettlement. So there's good ideas around the place. The World Food Program got the Nobel Prize. So that there's good stuff around, but there isn't leadership of the aid sector from a country at the moment. If you were advising, it doesn't have to be the Tories, but the UK government on how they should approach their foreign policy and their humanitarian policy, what would be your first, I guess, order of business? What would be your first thing that needs to be addressed? I mean, uh, to be fair, I should stick to what I said two weeks ago, which is that I made this speech where I said, in the first priority, so I could, if I choose something else, you'll say, hang on, you're being inconsistent, perfectly legitimately. So let's um, do two. First priority is shout, stop shouting about how great we are and start behaving with humility is important. Secondly, figure out who, what you stand for. And I've said we have to stand against impunity. That is the That, that should be the red thread of uh, UK foreign Thirdly, figure out who your allies are. So on the humanitarian agenda, which you mentioned, or the development agenda, the EU, the US are obvious allies. The Gulf needs to become a serious funder and a serious political engagement on, on, on development issues, aid issues, including in Syria, which is still on our watch list. It's a 10-year-old crisis plus, but it's not gone away. We've got a lot of staff there inside Syria and, of course, a lot of refugees in the region. But then you've got to say, look, there's a famine on the march in East Africa. If you want to be a player on the development aid scene, you've got to be active there. And the UK is nowhere at the moment. So along this kind of line of questioning of how you would advise, and obviously you've spent a lot of time in UK politics and you've made comments in recent interviews. Is there any plans to address that and to return to politics in the UK? No, look, I'm, I give the same answer to this question every time. And so there's nothing new to say about that. What I always say is that I make my professional choices according to where I think I can make the greatest impact. And I'm very focused on the job I'm doing. You know, I'm talking to you about how we can make a dent in these 340 million people who are in humanitarian need. That's what I'm focused on. You never know. You always have to hope you're going to get the different answer. So you always have to ask. <laughs> but yes, David Miliband, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Thursday for our discussion episode. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. 
Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.